0: welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole. And Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. On Writing the Coast, you'll hear conversations with the winners and finalists of the annual BC and Yukon Book Prizes, as well as interviews with book lovers from across the province and territory. My guest for this episode is Matt Rader, who you'll hear from in just a moment. Matt's book Ghost Talk is a finalist for the 2022 Dorothy Livesay Poetry Prize. In our conversation, we talk about what we need from nature and environmental writing, how Matt finds themes in his work, and the role that walking and bike riding has played in seeing the landscape he writes about. Here's Matt to introduce himself and to read from Ghost Talk.
1: My name is Matt Rader, and I'm speaking to you from uh, Kelowna, BC, which is the unceded traditional territory of the Seal Okanagan people. I'm in the park called Rutland, which uh, was a wintering, overwintering uh, village in pre-contact. And this book was really written in the Okanagan, and it's about learn- trying to learn how to be uh, first a guest, and then hopefully a, a resident. Both with the deep human history of the land, but the ecological and uh, spiritual and geological um, life of this valley. And if people don't know the valley, it's quite long, and there's a big lake in the middle of it, Okanagan Lake. It's quite deep. It's in some ways maybe best described as a freshwater fjord. So they're long. It's cut, glacial cut. There are high mountains on either side, and the the lake is more long than wide, and it has, it's very, very deep. And I would like to read you some poems that uh, maybe conjure this particular season of the uh, Okanagan, which has been wet, and now we're just at the getting to the scorching hot part of um, Okanagan life. This is a book, Ghost Hawk is a book of many kind of doublings and mirrorings and echoes and reprises and whatnot. So I'm going to read you a, a poem about the sun, a poem about a mariposa lily, a poem about the sun, and a poem about the mariposa lily. And then one last poem. So this is called Lake of the Sun. It's the trace of damage that testifies. Hammered metal sunlight on battered water. The anonymous bird backlit, cutting through for darker passage. Two thin lines of brightness streaming from its shoulders. I have to tell you, there's nothing in this world I can't imagine myself doing. How the white light of midday sun holds space for no vision. How it projects its glitchy fragmented glyphs over the pontoon bridge. It's like this, and it isn't. Uh, This is a, there's a flower that grows here, it doesn't grow on the coast, and there's many varieties of this mariposa lily. This is the sagebrush mariposa lily that grows here, and it has a hue that is um, purple on one end and almost white pink on the other end, you know, sort of a uh, space in between. And it's very striking. And for um, several years, I taught a course in July, at UBC Okanagan, with the indigenous summer intensive um, artists. And every year in the third week of that course, the mariposa lilies would bloom. And that would have been last week. So we're right right, just in the cusp of um, the end, maybe, of the Mariposa lily season here. So this is the first Mariposa poem. Did I say lonely? I meant lovely. I meant the Mariposa lily reminds me, in color and shape, of something I might kiss deeply. I say desire is a form of fear. You say the body is the soul's way of summoning another soul, whatever that means. I think the foothill of this mountain, with its community of lilies and sagebrush, is inside me, and I'm in the long afterlife of history. I think thinking about my feelings rarely helps me feel differently. In the cancer ward, where you slept, the curtains were the pale lilac of the lily. So one of the biographical details that informs this, these poems, but doesn't very often rate, get to the surface of the poems, are um, a variety of illnesses that I experienced. And also people in my immediate family. So uh, that's part of the, the um that surfacing at the end of that poem. This is a poem called Light Well, one word, Light Well, but it is a bit of a pun, I suppose. And you can take the leaving at the beginning of this poem in a few different ways. The morning after you left, the sun was a dim white light It didn't make me think of anything, not angels, not death. I couldn't look directly at it, but its effects were everywhere. The swarm of raindrops alive in the lilac, metallic skyscape floating in my truck's silver paint. A brightness too bright to look at is the true definition of a thing beyond me a white hole I fall endlessly through into my body. Woe to see the sun someone once wrote and not think of angels, but I'd like to not think at all, if possible. Just feel something cosmic reach through the altostratus and touch me. And on the next page is the second Mariposa poem. Mariposa too. Now the familiar thunder of questions. Now again the lily. The more I breathe, the less I have to say about the mariposa, its smelter of water and light, turning absence into a shape we name lily, turning purple into the ghost of last year's petals, turning petals. Into three part sky. Or, the more I breathe, the more I have no choice. Or, the only thing turning was the eye of the lily. Who comes back exactly as they were? The lily, its brief equanimity, taketh my hand, have mercy. So this is the last proper poem in the book, it's called Joyland, and it's not a summer poem, it's a deep autumn poem. I wanna tell you something funny, something true. Along my street, honey locust trees burn their autumn stores of sunlight. I know it's not funny. I'm thinking of joy this evening, walking across the glowing embers of leaves, how difficult it can be to confront unabashed sincerity when, as if pranked into being, the antic black humor of a bat bursts like laughter right in front of me. It's not funny, I hear the honey locust say, but I can't stop. I'm afraid I might crack into flame What's funny is how perfectly a honey locust stores energy from outer space then drops it like burning shadows at our feet. Or how a bat can origami evening air into its own image and send it hurtling through darkness, possessed, winged, composed of ever-changing shapes. What's true? The torch path of autumn trees the ricochet of bats and laughter, my joy, its wild excess. All my life, it's been easier to talk suffering than the weightless plenitude of grace. I give you now the face of the sun and a diaspora of leaves, the shadows of houses gathering like people around a fire, the bat of laughter under the lamplight of trees, Flipping pages of reality. Outside the crummy motel in Ocean Beach. The sun claws across shit white rocks. Sandy tarmac. The knit fringe of surf you skirt. Barefoot. Your wild blue kite tugging at you. Making letter shapes in the sky. An athletic enigmatic skywriting. Whose spirited heady sense. You sense clearly in the top kite string a quivering line of gravity through your body, to the center of all things.
0: Thank you. Thanks. So my first question for you is a strange question. I start with like a kind of universal icebreaker question. And this season, my icebreaker question is, if you could read one book or watch one TV show for the rest of your life, what would it be and why?
1: Well, I've been reading um, Seamus Heaney's book "Seeing Things" every year for 25 years, so it seems like a, the likeliest candidate. Uh, and I'm not really sure. Maybe it's like one of those things where it spoke to me at a certain point, and then my relationship with it has grown. Um, because I didn't. I wouldn't make the case that this any any one book is the book that people should read. <laughs> Uh, But my experience of reading that book is almost like growing up with the book. Like as I get older um, and and I see more patterns in my life, I recognize them in this book. And this book continues to grow with me and unfold. And uh, at the beginning, it was very much like I would read it and I didn't think I understood a single word. I don't think I understood anything maybe a year of reading this book. And that's not an exaggeration. I'd read it and I'd think, oh, this thing is doing some kind of like magic. It seemed like a little whirly machine, things that would pop out of it and surprise me. Um, And now uh, at 44, I'm reading it. You know, I was in Berlin this spring, sitting in a cafe making notes on the first poems and seeing things I had never seen before in those first poems after many, many uh after a quarter century of reading this book. Um, so that's my best guess what would be a good
0: book to take. (laughs) Have you had to buy a new copy or is it the same book copy? Yeah.
1: Well actually I I still read the same copy, but I've owned multiple copies of it at different times and uh and I don't know where they have the best thing about the copy I have, I got it used in the back is a set of um somebody's written down the like phone number and name and cost of music lessons (laughs) and and i just thought that's so appropriate for this book you know (laughs) Um,
0: anyway i love those little gifts that people leave in their secondhand books yeah (laughs) yeah I wanted to start with the title of your book. I wondered if you could talk about who or what is Ghost Talk.
1: Um, Yeah. Thank you for asking that question. Um, Sometimes I forget to say it, even though it's an important part. Um, When I was, so I grew up on Northern Vancouver Island and I had two brothers. And in the early eighties, mid eighties, I guess, like 1985, my mom had to go back to work, and she didn't have anybody to look after me and my brothers. At the same time, a family friend of ours named Rodney, he was living as a working as a big game guide in the Yukon and uh, a photographer. And he had a cabin at Burwash Landing, and the cabin burned down. He didn't have anywhere to go, and so my mom and Rodney forged this deal where he would come and look after us. Uh, so. You can imagine in northern Vancouver Island in a small fishing village, um, these three boys who are being uh, raised during the day by a guy who had just spent his like last decade as a like, big game guide in the Yukon, literally wearing moccasins all year round, and like uh, so he um, taught us how to harvest wild food, and he taught us how to camp and hike. We did crazy thing we tracked wolves um, um, uh, me and my brother who was I was nine and he was six we were tracking these wolves across uh, Cape Scott in the northern part of Vancouver my very most northerly part of Vancouver Island and Rodney uh came out as a gay man uh when we were I don't forget exactly how old we were um and Again, you can kind of imagine like what Northern Vancouver Island, small town, what that might mean for somebody then. But he also contracted HIV um, and he passed away when I was 17. But before he passed away, he told us that he would come back as a hawk and that's how we would see him. Um, So we have, Everybody in my family, whenever we see a hawk or like you're having a bad day or something, we're like, oh, there's Rodney. This is like, to, to this day, we send each other texts or photos of the hawks we saw that are Rodney. So he's the ghost hawk. And his importance for me in this book was that I was trying to figure out a way to live on here. I lived my entire life on the coast, most of it on Vancouver Island. And I had moved to this place, uh, New Okanagan Valley, that was just very, very different. And I didn't know how to be here. I had all of these other health issues, and there were health, like some serious health issues in my immediate family. And we were all not only trying to live in this new place, but like how do you live in your body um, and at the same time. Uh, and so Rodney had been this person who had taught me one way to live on Vancouver Island and so I was re- repurposing some of those lessons for myself uh, on this land and I happened to find a planisphere one day that he had given me when, when I was maybe eight or nine years old planospheres are like I don't know if anybody uses them anymore because we have digital things but you know like it's a disc and you could turn it and depending on your latitude and the time of this year you it would sort of reveal what the night sky should look like, and you could find some constellations there. Uh, so I started writing a poem about that, and it became Ghost Hawk, and I just realized that he was the guide for me one more time.
0: Yeah. Did you like did you know that was going to be the title of the book? Or or how are you with titles? I know some people struggle with. You know, giving their poetry and their mm-hmm. books' titles—is um, that an easy or a hard process for you?
1: Um, I wouldn't say it's hard. I mean, I had been writing this book for quite a while before I wrote the poem that was Ghost Talk. But once I got the poem that was Ghost Talk, I knew that that would be the title. I think the book had been accepted at Nightwood with a different title, uh, so it had lots of different <laughs> uh, iterations. Yeah sometimes it's very clear and sometimes it's not. I don't like tend to I know some people really struggle with it and like they really kind of uh, wring their hands about it but I'm a little more trying to practice a little equanimity on the title front. Eventually the right title will present itself Uh usually, you, usually you've already written the title somewhere you just have to you know it's like the when you can't find your keys and the best thing to do is just stop looking for them and then they will, they will show themselves to you it's something like that
0: yeah I think themes are themes in books are kind of the same way like you can be working on a collection or an essay or whatever and you don't like the the writer is often entirely unaware of the themes until Somewhere along the line, it all kind of comes to the surface. Um, yeah. and and I wondered about that for you with this book because I mean, there's just such beautiful details of the landscape and uh the environment, but there's this hum of you know grief and longing and connection. But how did those themes uh you know percolate for you? Uh,
1: maybe it's a sort of like trying to f- define your keys as you said, is a similar kind of process Uh, my this is how i think it mostly works for most people even though i would never really say it i would never tell somebody this is how it works for you but i i think that you are you who you are and you're doing your life you have the struggles you have or the thoughts you have and you have a kind of angle on the world that you're describing so it it's not like surprising that these things accumulate and they uh they begin to make some sense or they begin to have some resonance with each other because even if you're writing a completely fictional thing it that thing is still uh, informed by your lived experience even from an imaginative perspective so i have a lot of faith that that if i just attend to what's happening to me at any like given point which is a weird sort of thing to say, because we all know that you write a poem and sometimes you work on it for years. Right. So like, it's not like uh, that poem has this one, um, arrives necessarily out of one exact, you know, a nexus of currents in your life. But, um, but yeah, that's what, that's how I operate. I'm mostly, I'm, I'm just paying attention to what I'm paying attention to and then, at some point I started to challenge myself, you know, like in ghost talk, I, I, I shared the uh, manuscript or earlier versions of the manuscript with a few people because I knew that their feedback or their reactions to it would challenge me to consider aspects that I hadn't, wasn't maybe considering myself. And in that process, some focus comes into it because often you go, oh, I really need to say this other piece uh, in order to make something else clear you know, uh, in Ghost Talk, for example, I, in the sort of last phases of it, started to try and put more historical, mo- like things that you could hold on to and be like, oh, this is an actual moment in history, or this is a person, you know, who has a truck, <laughs> or, or whatever, right? Uh, so I think like the very, very beginning of the book begins with uh, like the morning after Lafayette Square, which is The morning after Trump walked out into Lafayette Square and um with with all of the riots that were happening around the Floyd murder and he had the bible and all that anyway I was wanting to give these little clues that were not over overly um that didn't take up too much space or too much attention but that you could if you wanted to sort of situate where this was in a uh, person's life Um, and and that was like a thing that I kind of had to put back in. And it's not quite a theme, but it helps, I think, focus the theme more, allow the theme to ha- have something to rest on.
0: Yeah. The other thing that, that is so beautiful in, in the pieces, all the wildflowers. And I know that in part of your coming up with this book and part of what was happening was you were out walking and writing down the names of the wildflowers and, and, I'm fascinated by walking as part of writing practice, because I think it's so many writers have made that part of how they write. And I wondered about that for you, like how walking fits in with who you are as a poet.
1: Uh, Well, being outside for sure and and walking. Walking is kind of... uh, I don't want to say essential, but it's very being able to walk and walk around the, uh, through canyons and over hills and around uh, rivers and whatnot um, is a really helpful way to begin to know uh, the world. Partly because you can change your pace. Like I did all, my friends for years when I would go walking with them were so annoyed because I was always stopping to like examine a plant and then usually give them some disquisition on that plant (laughs) or like uh, taking photographs. And um, I was really like doing that as like this kind of exercise more than I was investing a lot of meaning into it per se. But I knew that if I, if I did that, I would um, attend to the, features of the world I was in, um, who, whose neighborhood did I move into? Um, and I moved into the Ossier Dogwood neighborhood in the Sia area, or the Saskatoon Berry neighborhood. Um, and so walking was helpful in that way. Weirdly, because of some health issues, I have walked a lot less in the last while, but I've been riding my bike a lot more, and I feel like I'm learning the land in a different way now. Like I have a much better sense of the topography, like the rise and fall of the land, and also the built environment's relationship to heat and shade, and uh, all these sorts of things that are now like becoming more um, clear to me because I'm moving through this the, the valley in a different way and. Um, but you're right, walking is this major theme, not just for writers, but for all kinds of thinkers um, cross-culturally. I mean, walking meditation is one of the oldest meditation forms.
0: Yeah. as I was reading, i I couldn't help but kind of think of the the tradition around, nature and nature writing and writing about the environment because it's been so much of like there's so many poets and so many writers who have included nature in their work um including your teacher patrick lane wrote so beautifully about his own garden just outside his back door but i i think i was thinking about how that writing has changed and maybe it's because of climate change or maybe like it seems like we're interacting with nature and the environment in our writing in maybe a more like urgent and immediate way. Um, and I wondered how writing about your landscape has has changed how you see nature and the environment.
1: I think maybe uh, right now, human culture and uh, eco-cultures, like the cultures of um, plants and animals and geology and whatnot uh, are more closely meshed. Like historically there was there were all these you know, there are romantic ideas about nature and its relationship to the human mind and so on. And I think that there were times uh, where people really felt that the attending to nature was a way of avoiding uh, talking about, I don't know, um, the homeless folks who we meet every day or uh, immigration, or um, le- the built environment and its relationship to the land. Uh, and I think at this point, because we are engaged in this moment where our own actions, our own cultural like um, structures have had such an impact on the environment that it's from that becoming harder to disentangle them, or it seems disingenuous to talk about the natural world that as somehow separate from the human world. Um, and I think that maybe that is something that is coming through. I don't know. I, I have, um. like, I sometimes think I'm really just a nature poet because when I look outside, the biggest things I can see are mountains and sky, like, by far. And it seems weird to not mention them. Um, that's basically the... Uh, the If I walk around, I'm like, actually, more, you know, yeah, there are lots of buildings here, but there are more trees. Um, And there's more, there's certainly the mountains are much larger. And if you go up a mountain and you look down, it's like, could talk about that little tiny city over there. But it's just a speck compared to everything else that's around. And it does strike me as a bit odd to not talk about it. Uh, So that's maybe how I have ended up there. I have, like, made sort of post-Ghost talk. I I really wanted, I asked myself, well, how can I turn my attention to all of those things that I was perhaps paying less attention to because I was focused on the sun and the mountains and the sky? Um, And, of course, the two things start to be one thing. Um, But even just to have the language of, of the human culture, uh, those words are, uh, in in poems it seems important now and it seems important in relationship to, to nature. I think there is one danger, I guess, maybe about thinking about climate change too much is that we focus too much on the human aspect of it. Or like certainly in art that I, I kind of think maybe in some one, one way to reshape our relationship with how we live would be to put the human aspect in a more like um, appropriate um, sort of size, you know, like have it less of a central role in uh, in things, and uh, and maybe that's one way that I think Ghost Talk was was attempt for me to say like actually. I really need to pay attention to that Mariposa lily. It was here before me. It knows way more about living here than I do. Um, this is its space. Uh the, the, the lilies and the uh sagebrush and whatnot are having a conversation with each other. And you know, I should be so lucky to be able to hear even a little snippet of it. And that seems like my path to uh if not survival, at least being a good uh, neighbor in the meantime.
0: Yeah. I love that idea of moving into a neighborhood and it not just being the people next door but the the other natural neighbors that have been there for so much longer. It's an important thing to remember.
1: Yeah, not just from a not just from a respect political perspective, but from a like pragmatic perspective. From a like it really makes a lot of sense to pay attention to the flow of water. (laughs) You know, like, where does it go down? Gravity really is really tells you, telling you a lot of things about how you might want to live in a place. Um, And and the plants are certainly telling you a lot of things because they're in places that have certain um, properties, you know? So it's not just a spiritual, political respect thing, but, like, I think a very pragmatic, like... Uh, practice That I'm certainly not the only one there are many many people doing this and many people doing it in the ways that I am still learning from yeah
0: um my last question for you and and this is a hard one because this is an audio podcast uh but I'd love for you to talk about the cover of your book because um, oh, yeah. I know it's special and uh, if you could talk about how the cover kind of came to be
1: um, so the cover has um, it's an image sort of of a, of a young girl in a surrealist way where her eye is also a butterfly and there's also um, a two-headed snake mm-hmm. um, and tree her hair is tree roots and uh, there are all these little details and um, It was made, designed by Myron Campbell, who is a Kelowna artist, who I uh, work with at University of British Columbia at the Okanagan campus. Here, Um, he used a photograph by Andreas Rytaszkis, who's another uh, one of my colleagues. Um, That is the background of the of the uh, image, Uh, and it's a photograph of a burned out area of the Okanagan Valley, and the 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 girl's sort of head shape is a composite of uh, my two children, um, uh, my daughter, and I have a non-binary thirteen-year-old kid. So, um, they this image has all of those things, and I really wanted it to have an Okanagan feel. Uh, the my name and the and the title are my printing um so Myron did an amazing job of like just it was really fun to work with him about it and I, I I honestly I just said to myself I really want the cover and on the back and everything just to be people who I really think are amazing and who I have like completely uh, just so much affection and admiration for and so that, that was the criteria of who I was going to work with like do, do I basically love this person <laughs> um so it was really uh, special to have Myron work on it and to be able to use Andreas's uh, photo and uh, to have this kind of like composite of my two kids who uh, I guess are kind of like a portal, you know, like the children are the sort of portal to a next phase. And I think the, the image is itself a bit of a portal. I'm sure that it's easy to find online or whatever, but no, it's worth looking up. And worth looking up Myron and Andreas. Was, uh, Myron Kemmel and Andreas Raduskas. They're both their work is exceptional.
0: That was Matt Rader. His book of poetry, Ghost Talk, is a finalist for the 2022 Dorothy Livesay Poetry Prize. If you would like to find out more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, please visit our website at bcyukonbookprizes.com. You can also find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we share lots of news about upcoming events and more. Next time on Writing the Coast, you'll hear my conversation with Carrie Jenkins. Her novel, Victoria Sees It, is a finalist for the 2022 Ethel Wilson Fiction Prize. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.